Good morning. Good morning. I'm Roger, grateful alcoholic. Hey, Roger. I thought everybody would be sleeping in. It's pretty full. Um, my sobriety date's August the 15th, 1983. I have a home group. It's a traditions group right in Elizabethtown, uh, Kentucky, a few hours up the road or a little bit up the road. And i um, really grateful that there's members of my home group here this morning that came down for the day. Um, missed a big event at my home group last night because I was here. Um, so I'd like to say happy birthday to Johnny, who uh, celebrated 40 years sober. And um, great example of AA. I learned an awful lot from uh, those who have uh, been down this path a little bit further than me, and a lot of the learn a lot from those people that um, that are new on this journey. Or um, you know, we're all doing it together. Um, <clears throat> this is a it's a great honor, and I want to thank the committee. I want to thank everybody that worked on the committee: uh, J.C. Stan. Um, Just Charlie, uh, Nicole, um, uh, Nikki, um, and a whole bunch of people that I don't know their name, but <laughs> just a lot of people. And um, I'll miss somebody, and they'll have a resentment, and um, I don't want to do that. But thank you for inviting me, um, the loving invitation. It's really um, an honor to be in a mem- meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an honor to uh, to share your story and, um, and help identify uh, what we were like, what happened, and what we're like now. And just like um, and, uh, Brother Luke, um, I've been up to the Abbey. Um, you know, our literature says that uh, whenever I am disturbed, there's something wrong with me. Yeah. Whenever I am disturbed, come, what's wrong? What are you, something's wrong with me. And I've been up to the Abbey to uh, to share that with Brother Luke and spend some time with him. And um, always very helpful and very um, loving, good, solid, AA, sober spiritual advice, and um, it usually has something to do with go do some work, <laughs> uh, do something different, and um, so I appreciate that, but just like he said last night, um, I too was born at a very early age, <laughs> and shortly after that I learned to walk and talk, and, um, and if you're a parent, you understand that you take your kid everywhere with you, and so um, to the grocery store or to the... Uh, um, out to eat, or, you know, uh, when you have small children, they're just with you. And so apparently at about three years old, I was just with them and at a bar, because that's what they did. And um, and I was thirsty, and I wanted juice, and I reached for this shot glass with juice in it, and I took my first drink at about three years old. And I turned 28 shades of red, and steam came out my ears, and um, flames blew out my mouth as I cried like a three-year-old baby. So I'm told. I don't remember. I think it was my first blackout. <laughs> my mom, she remembered that, and she told people that, and she enjoyed telling that story all the time. And so I'm sure it happened because that's what we did. We drove around. We went. We didn't go to a restaurant to eat as a family that didn't serve alcohol. So there was no cafes or diners or anything like that. We always that was sort of a part of the how we lived. And um, my dad was a heavy drinker or alcoholic, depending on um, what day he was self-identifying his um, diagnosis. But he drank a lot, and so there was a lot of alcohol in our family. And so as I grew up, I began to sip the beers and and sneak around, and um, then I began to play the bartender. 
at some point, and I would go to the that refrigerator in the garage. You know, I don't know if you have one, but we had one that was like just beer, and then the food was in the kitchen. So I'd go be the runner and bring them beers, and I discovered that they couldn't keep count, really. And so four for you, one for me. Four for you, one for me, and I began, I, I developed a stash, and once I got about a 12-pack of random different kinds of beer, I put them in a backpack and went out to the woods, and we built a little campfire, and my friends and I passed those beers around and shared them, and I got that glow. I got that magic, like um, the pimples fell off, and the muscles grew, and I got taller, and I got more confident and um, I just felt like the world was just lifted off of my shoulders. The, the magic elixir. Like, I had seen people fight, and I thought alcohol was really a problem in my family from what I had observed. But now I knew that it wasn't the problem at all. It was the solution. And this was it. And I spent the rest of my life trying to catch that perfect buzz. And I don't know about how you drank, but I was like, I was two beers short of perfect all the time. <laughs> two more, probably two more adequate. I was just a little, just maybe two more. And, uh, and I would go out and I would drink. And that was from the beginning to the blackout. I would, well, okay, I'm feeling pretty good. Probably two more, probably two more. And we ought to just, we'd probably be right there. And then later on, I would be mouthing off to somebody and uh, getting kicked out of their house or something. But I was probably thinking two more and two more. And then I would wake up in a pile of my own puke on your couch with a black eye trying to figure out where was I exactly? Why am I all beat up? And if I can just get out of this, if I can just, like, change clothes, flip your couch cushion over, and walk away, none of this ever really happened. But I was always, but what happened? I went over the two beers. I must have, like, the formula wasn't right. And so that's basically how I drank. Um, I spent a lot of time, um, I got... So I used to smoke a lot of pot. But the thing with that is um, it was easy to get in high school. I turned 16 years old and I was driving and a guy down the street turned my ID card into an 18-year-old and I had a new favorite because it was the, the great equalizer for me. It was consistent. It did exactly what I wanted it to do every single time. And so with that fake ID, I would go and try it out and buy a 12-pack of beer. The guy would look at me, card me, give it back, and sell me the beer. And I was like, yes, I'm a grown-up. I'm a man. This is it. And I just, so then it was like I had a little part-time job. I would uh, buy a case of beer um, on Friday night. See, I, so I was born in that house where they drank a lot. Honest to God, true story. I didn't know banks cash paychecks. Did you guys know that? I did not know. I thought you had to cash your check at the bar. 
Because that's what I saw. That was the examples in my life. That's how they did it. And some of it got home for groceries and stuff like that. And some of it, you know, they just drank. Come home late on Friday on a payday. So I'd go to the bar, try to cash my paycheck and uh, buy a case of Little Kings. I got sober uh, north of here in a place called Cincinnati. It's where I grow up. And so uh, there was this thing called Little Kings. I just loved these little green bottles of cream ale and um, higher alcohol content and um, very sophisticated because it was in a green bottle, right? <laughs> so I drank a lot of that. That was one of my – but I really didn't care. Um, when I was scrounging uh, quarters and dimes and nickels out of the couch cushion and the, um, and the register for the furnace, um, red, white, and blue was fine. Quarter of that would be good. Whatever it took. Um, at some point, I found a pony keg, a drive-through pony keg. I love those. Don't drink and drive. We have drive-through pony kegs in in the Cincinnati area. And he would sell me. Um, you're supposed to be 21 for liquor and uh, wine, but he would sell me uh, Mad Dog and TJ Swan with my little ID card that said I was 18, and he didn't look at it very closely. He would just sell it to me, and he didn't really care. And I was like that. It's the kind of people I was looking for, <laughs> right? Before I got that idea, I would have to stand outside a little convenience store and try to find somebody that was would buy me some but not turn me in. And it was hard to figure out, like, you know, you got to judge people and make, figure out who to ask and who not to ask. And So this was very convenient, and um, I was... Uh, I was hanging out with these guys. I was in the back seat of a school bus going to high school in suburbia, USA, drinking Mad Dog from a straw in the back seat of the bus with my buddies, and, but I didn't have a problem, right? Because we were just living life and having fun. Life became about the party. Who's having a party? It became about the weekend warrior, and then that rolled into every daily drinking. Um, I wanted to be rich. And I found a legitimate business opportunity in a legitimate publication called High Times Magazine. <laughs> if they sell it on the newsstand, it can't be wrong. Um, and I bought this stuff, and I began to sell this stuff because the profit margin was pretty good, and I fancied myself a big shot um, member of the drug cartel or something someday. I don't know. Um, I just thought I was going to get rich. And for a 17-year-old kid, I was. I had this big, I had really long hair, and I only wore black concert T-shirts and jeans, and I had this big Army OD green jacket, and I would have these these pills that they sold as antihistamines or something. I don't know. Um, and I would have a pocket full of these in the morning and a pocket full of dollar bills in the afternoon. I had more dollar bills than a stripper by the end of the day. It was great. And so I was a big shot. I, in my head, I was a big shot, and then I got other people to... Um, so what that led to in that lifestyle is more drinking, more wild weekends, more like um, trying to live up to that reputation of a big shot, which led to getting caught doing that and... Before all that happened, something significant in my life happened. My dad um, remarried, and he, he my stepmom uh, got cancer when she got pregnant. And um, the pregnancy sped up 
the, the cancer. And um, so my, my baby sister was born and came home from the hospital, but she did not. And about 18 months later, she passed away. And that was the my dad's love of his life. And so he was drinking himself crazy, trying to cope and deal with this great significant loss in his life. He came home one day and he told me and my sister, look, I got to go. He moved to an apartment above a bar. And all he did was work and drink. And he said, but you're staying here. And my sister, your aunt, is moving in here to take care of you. And what I heard that day was, you're just part of the furniture. You're just staying with the house, and I'm leaving. And that's what I heard that day. Um, I, I, I see it differently today. But that's what I heard that day, and it hurt, and I was numb, and I just wanted to numb that feeling. And so that's what I was trying to do, is just not feel, because um, because that was painful. And I felt unloved, and I felt all those things that alcohol did for me, when, you know, the pimples fell off, people loved me, I was confident, I was, I was a loud mouth, I got in a lot of fights, I got picked on, because I couldn't keep my mouth shut when I drank. And so that's the kind of drinker I was. Um, so I got, uh, um, my aunt arranged this intervention and, um, I went to, uh, I went to a treatment center. They sold me this idea of treatment. It was great. It's co-ed. They learn how to have fun sober and it's going to be great. It was an adolescent treatment center. And so off I went to this place on their promise that this was a, and I had had friends, right? Cause I hang out with people that have been to treatment before. And they came out, and they drank with us, and they were fine. So I knew they weren't, like, brainwashed or anything, nothing. They were the same. So I could I could survive this, and I could get away from my home life and, like, all my problems. I could just go away. And I went away, and they put me in pajamas and paper slippers, and I don't remember them talking about that part. wasn't in the deal. So here I was, and I have to work up the level system, right, to uh, to get to go out to have fun sober, and they're um, going to pizza and ice cream, and they're coming back and they're talking to us, guys in pajamas and level one two people, and like how great it was. So I'm like, I am a people pleaser. I can follow your rules and I can get to that level where I get to go out. And so I did that pretty quickly, and it's time for me to go get on the white short bus, and. Um, I don't know if anybody came here. That's how I came to my first meeting. One of them 15 passenger vans. So um, we go out, and I'm all excited about pizza and ice cream and movie night or whatever it is, and they roll up to this church, and we get out. And um, it's a it's the Monday Night Young People's Group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I don't really want to be there, and I don't really know what AA is. I do know what AA is, because along those lines, later on, um, my dad eventually got through what I was talking about, and he remarried, and he married somebody who was an alcoholic. And we had a family meeting again, and she went away to Batesville, Indiana, for treatment and came back, and they went to meetings, and then they went to drink. So I assume that you go to AA and then you, it does, I mean, you drink after the meeting. And so she was a closet drinker. Um, Brother Luke was talking about, um, 
you know, losing your stash, right? So we had this relationship where I tried to make wine once, for example, and um, she would, uh, when the wine was ready, it was time to drink the wine, um, it was gone. (laughs) And she tried to tell me it evaporated. (laughs) So she was a closet scotch drinker, and she always had, like, pints stashed in various places that my dad couldn't find out about. And so I would steal her stashed scotch because she can't tell on me. And so I was wandering around looking for a bottle of scotch in in her bedroom in a drawer, and I found a, a Hazleton publication called One Day at a Time. And I opened it up, and it said, A, thought for the day, meditation for the day, and it was uh, in prayer for the day. And I read a few pages of that, and I thought, oh, my gosh, those holy rollers, it's a religious deal. Put that away and um, on to look for the scotch. So here I am coming to my first AA meeting. You're religious and you drink after the meeting. That's all I knew about AA. So I walk in and there's a tunnel of people. A tunnel. Like 50, 100 people. Kind of like this. Like the room is overflowing, right? For the people listening to it on the recording. There's people standing in the back. they got an overflow room. Never in the history of the Kentucky State Convention has there ever been a Saturday morning speaker this popular. (laughs) If you're listening to it on tape. (laughs) Um, Just kidding. Um, So there there were 50 people, and I had to shake all their hand. They were the greeters, right? They were the greeters, and I had to walk through this gauntlet of people. And I was due, of course. I just came on the van, so it could have been three. My perception, I don't know. But it felt like an awful lot of people that I had to shake their hand to get into the meeting room. So we got into the meeting room, and they told us that we had to go to these classrooms for sponsorship or steps one, two, and three, or another topic I can't remember. There were three beginner's classes for newcomers before you the the big meeting was in a gymnasium in a in a in a in a big or a church basement it moved to a gym later it was in a church basement that day they had beginner's classes and um i wanted to go it looked like a lot more fun in the big meeting but you know we followed directions cuz we were we were herded into the beginner's classes so here's what I know about that day. That was my first meeting, and I saw that I wanted what you had. It looked exciting. Um, God sent me, a 17-year-old punk kid, to the best place that he could get the message, to an on-fire young people's group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Cincinnati, where they had just been awarded the bid for the International Conference of Young People in AA. And they were hosting that. So most of the members of the host committee were a member of that home group. And so they were just enthusiastic and on fire. That committee met before the meeting. I had no idea. I just got in the van and went where they told me to go. But God knew what he was doing. And he sent me to that place. And I didn't know for two more years, and I didn't connect the dots until I got a little bit more into service, that right before I walked through the door, months, a few months before I walked through the door, That group was a healthy group of Alcoholics Anonymous that had a group inventory. And they had decided at that group inventory to have greeters. 
to make that kid feel welcome or that newcomer. They decided to have beginners meetings because they were getting, they were a very good group. And when you have a popular message, you get a lot of visitors. And they were getting a lot of visitors and they were getting a lot of uh, treatment centers sending people to them. And to solve that problem and help those people have the best chance they could, they started these beginners classes to explain what AA is and what AA is not and how it works and the steps and the sponsorship, how that works. And um, So that is what I walked into. I walked into a – and I was very, very fortunate. I, I don't know that everybody that comes to their first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous is that lucky. That's huge if you think about it. If you think about the members of Alcoholics Anonymous or the potential visitors to Alcoholics Anonymous who might need what we got and walk into their first meeting and it's not like that. It's not a healthy meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I find that sad and unfortunate. And um, I hope that just like Stan said, I hope your group is the best group of Alcoholics Anonymous in the world, in your opinion. Um, if it's not, please don't come to our group and screw it up, too. <laughs> Stay there and work on it. Take a group inventory. And um, there are some tools and solutions. And as Lisa would say, we got some literature for that. And um, <laughs> um, So that's my first group. I didn't get the pizza and ice cream party my first outing. I got an AA meeting. And I didn't want an AA meeting, but that's exactly what I needed. And so eventually I got to go to all the other stuff and learn how to have fun sober. And I got out of that place, and the seed was planted. Really, that's all I can say. The seed was planted, and I got picked up by my buddies. And I can remember a day after treatment, sitting in the back seat of somebody's car, but I can vividly see that big, tall Colt 45 that I popped open and said, yeah, they call this a relapse. And off I was, like, to the races. It wasn't a relapse because I was never really sober. I was just sort of introduced to AA, and I hadn't had a drink in about six weeks. But off I went, but the seed was planted, and I came back from time to time. I came back. Some people, some some guys that had, um, I got a sponsor, right? They had this meet-and-greet thing on Sunday night, and they would say, uh, Guys from AA would come in and introduce themselves, and we would talk to them. And I got a sponsor. I got a sponsor. They said, find somebody that has what you want. And so uh, Rick had a Corvette and a motorcycle. <laughs> he was the first guy in the group to have a pager. He was very popular. And um, the ladies seemed to really like him. So he really had what I wanted on the outside. So he agreed to be my sponsor. And so we had a bunch of guys that would go over to his house and they would um, they would work the steps and I was sort of hanging with them and not really serious. But I was still drinking on the side. I was closet drinking. But I was going to AA from time to time because I wanted what you had. It looked attractive to me. The whole young people scene. I could go to the dances and go to the parties. But then I would still drink secretly when you didn't let... But see, I thought you cared. Like, I didn't know everybody was just thinking about themselves. I thought it was just me. So I thought you were counting my sobriety. So if I didn't get up and take a 30-day chip in 30 days, you would wonder what the heck is up with me. So I got up and took a 30-day chip. Total lie. And a 60-day chip. Total lie. And um, I don't know if I took a 90. Somewhere 
Anyway, at one of those little trips over to Rick's house, um, I put my head down in shame and I said, you know, I'm not really sober. I can't really take this. And all that outside stuff that I was attracted to, I mean, none of it really mattered. He just put his arms around me and he gave me a big hug and he said, thank you. Thank you for finally being honest. And now we can get to work. And so he did have what I wanted. I just didn't see the spirit that he had, you know, the 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 fact that he was a sober member of AA that worked the steps and, and was working with guys and trying to help me the whole time. And so we began a different relationship when it was... Um, it was a better begin to take me through the steps. I still didn't really know much about AA except for don't drink and go to meetings. Uh, so I tried to stay sober for a while, and then at four months, went back out and in and out. At some point, I went out to California. I'd had several months of sobriety, and um, nobody knew me out there. And I don't know if you've experienced that. I've heard that story in AA before, but nobody knew me, so I could get away with it. I could take a few drinks. And nobody will really know. And so I did. And then it was a two-week run where I didn't draw sober breath for a couple, the whole time I was out there. And um, got really bad. I felt really bad. I couldn't get AA out of my head. We would make a last-minute run before the liquor store closed, and we would get behind the Easy Does It bumper sticker at the light. <laughs> and there it was in my head. At some point... We, um, I came back right after, um, well, something, something happened that changed all that. So I was going to be a rock and roll star, except for I have no talent. <laughs> this is after I abandoned the, the drug cartel thing. I had goals. I mean, there was nothing wrong with my goals. I was really driven all my life. So... I have no talent, so I wanted the lifestyle of a rock and roll star, so I thought I'd be a roadie and a songwriter. And so I had this notebook of songs, and I would uh, try to write songs. And so in this notebook was this, I, I suppose it might have been a song or rhyme, but but my thoughts were clear that I can't imagine life with or without alcohol, and I'm going to check out. I'm just going to kill myself. That's the solution. I can't do this. I can't drink. It's not working anymore. And I can't go back to AA and be a failure, right, because I thought there was something about failing, like I couldn't let you down or I couldn't. I just couldn't stand to go back to AA. So, And um, I suppose there's a lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous that might find themselves in that position. If you ever think that, come back. We'll love you anyway. It doesn't matter. Keep coming back. Come back. Um, don't do that to yourself, right? Don't do it. It scared me. And I decided I would come back to AA and try it again, for real. And so just as soon as the plane lands, because there's free champagne on the plane. <laughs> so I was drinking that comp cold duck, and um, at the last call they said, Last the last time the cart goes up and down the aisle, and I said Jack and Coke, because Jack Daniels is manly, but I needed a Coke. <laughs> so, and I put that little bottle that you give on airports. I, I I took that home and I put it on a shelf, and I said that's my last drink. 
And what I know that I learned later about AA is the ego that put that trophy on that shelf had to be crushed still. That I was done and I was scared, but I couldn't, I had to get rid of that ego, you know. And a year and a half later, my apartment burned down and I lost everything to include that, that poetry book, all that stuff. And um, clean slate, all gone. Um, but from that day to this, that was August the 15th, 1983, that's been my last drink. And so that began a journey of, well, I didn't know anything different. I just would not drink and go to meetings. So that's what I tried to do. And um, I don't know, a year, year and a half sober, I'm at college, things are going well, I got a girlfriend, I got a car, and I began to lose all that stuff in the next week, right? And so I'm flunking out of school, I don't got a girlfriend, my car is stuck in the snowbank, and I try to drive my car off the cliff and kill myself again. And this time, I'm like that anger and rage, because I got no way to treat it, I get angry. I have like, um, I've had people do high beams at me, behind me, because road rage. I've been so angry that I just ripped my rearview mirror off. That's how I solved that problem. Screw you, I'll hurt me. So here I was trying to drive my car off a cliff. I screamed at the top of my lungs some profanity. Screw you, God, I quit. I quit AA, I quit you, get out of my life, I'm done with this crap. And bebopping down the road came an AA member (laughs) with grave emotional and mental disorders. (laughs) The guy in the meeting that I just, God, I hated that guy. That guy's got issues, man. Let's stay away from that guy. And he was my Eskimo that day. I don't know if you heard the Eskimo story. That's been around for a while. But I was at the end of my rope, and here comes Tim. And he will not leave until I walk with him to the noon meeting he's going to. And we're in the University of Cincinnati area, and we're walking over this place called Oak Street. And, um, he will not leave. No, just you go. I just quit AA. I'm not going back to that place no more. And he dragged me, and we went to a noon meeting. And by the end of the meeting, we were laughing about it. We found somebody to go tow my car out of the snow, go get something to eat, and we were okay. And I got through that day because God sent the most unlikely of people. You know, I can't be choosy where I get my help. I I don't know who's going to be my help, but I can't be picky. God is going to send who's to help however it gets there. So that that was good. And then I got a different sponsor who we walked through the AA Big Book and we took the steps and I took an inventory. And I had taken an inventory before, but it wasn't honest, right? This was walking through the book hand in hand and I was absolutely now I was willing. And then my life, um, I mean, I've been sober since 1983, an awful lot of life way more that can be in an AA talk. So I never know what I'm going to talk about. But that, back to that thing with my dad, where I thought I was a piece of furniture and I felt horrible. You know, I just, he just passed away in January, just last month. And um, our stories, like, it's the same event. I see it differently. 
And now the, so as we work through the steps, one of the, the amends, like the guy on the top of my resentment list besides me was my dad. I hated that guy for that and some a lot of other things that I thought he did to me. And so my sponsors, so the way my dad says, I love you, is here's 20 bucks or here's 50 bucks because he can't say the words. But he tries to tries to give, in in a, in a, and so I was at a point where like I would go see him before the meeting that I went to on Friday night. I would swing by because I knew he was good for at least twenty bucks, and that was my motive. And so Roy told me to go see my dad and turn down the money, and he said, "And do it when you're really broke." That's how I began to make the amends because he knew better than I did what I needed. And so I did that. Did what my sponsor said, turned down the money. And then I left and in my head I'm thinking next week he's good for at least 50. (sighs) Still sick. So I go and he doesn't offer the money. And so that began, I mean, look, he was... Five years ago, he came through E-Town on his way back from a cruise, and he tried to buy dinner, and he's on Social Security, or it was. So that never went away, but it began to heal the process that I'm not here for your money. I'm just here to spend time with you because I love you. And um, and just say that until you mean it, and then do it. And at some point, we went coast to coast. Like, I, I, would, I joined the military. My car was in South Carolina at the port, and I was going to Fort Carson, Colorado. And he drove out with me to Colorado and flew back to get my car there. We stopped by Fort Riley, Kansas, where he was stationed. He was so excited that the barracks he used to live in was still standing, and they were using it for something. And we drove around, and we seen all the, the tanks and the cannons, and um, it was really good. It was it was a great several days trip. A um, few years go by, and like right before he passed away, actually, like last year, last October, my sisters get this wild idea to give him an honor flight as a veteran. And so I said, "Yeah, man, how much?" And they said, "No, we want you to be the guardian." So they hooked it up and put him in and. Put whatever sob story you got to put into the application, and they got him. They got him approved for this honor flight with these other veterans. And um, before he died, he said it was a time of his life that one day. And I don't think it was because he got to see the Iwo Jima Memorial or the Vietnam Wall. It was because he got to hang out and fellowship with other veterans. That he was just he enjoyed sitting and talking to them. And, and meeting these guys, and so uh, there, were, there was a, an entire flight. And they make them VIPs for the day. If you've ever experienced that, it's from uh, 5 o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. Now, I've been in Washington, D.C. an awful lot of times on business in the military, and I thought I knew how to get around Washington, D.C. pretty efficiently on the metro. I got a better way, police escort. I had no idea how we were going to get all that done, but they got these motorcycle cops and we got VIPs get out of our way and they, they part the traffic in Washington DC. It's great. So we got all that stuff and we spent the day together. Me pushing him around in a wheelchair with the, um, the little portable oxygen and, um, in the time of his life. 
And so that's what amends, like, goes from, like, that guy on the top of the list, you know, and then, of course, in January I got the call, come now, right? And so he died, surrounded by me and my sisters and his wife and surrounded by family, right? And we had to uh, walk through that together. But that, and as I was sharing that experience at the dining room table with my sister, I'm like, I see that day different. How do you, how... And she she remembered that day, but she remembered it from her point of view, her story. And I said, now what I think he was trying to say, you know, same thing I say, here's $20, which means I love you. He sat us down and he said, I'm dying. I don't know what the heck to do with my life. I just lost my wife. I'm drinking myself to death. And I don't know what to do. But I'm going to give you the best chance you have to stay in this school district, to stay in this home, because my sister's going to help me. And she's going to come in here and she's going to raise you because I'm all screwed up. But because I love you, I'm letting you go. And I'm like, that's the same event that happened to me when I was a kid. But I see it in a different way today. Because of you and Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 steps and like unraveling and clearing away that wreckage that made me hate that guy that I love today. Right. And so, man, that is the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous in a nutshell. That's really it. Um, there's so much of a gift that you've given me by allowing me to work that process. Five years sober, I joined the Army because I was trying to, I had a baby. Um, of course, I, I got married. I met my wife at the front, uh, my first wife, on the front porch of Oak Street. <laughs> AA campus, I think they call it, right? Boy meets girl. And um, and I had been telling my sponsor, right, that I deserve a healthy relationship. I've been taking the steps. I've been trying for almost a year or whatever. I mean, and he just laughed and said, how can sick people have a healthy relationship? you got to be well first. So what I didn't know is that the healthy relationship that I was praying for was the baby boy that we would have together, right? And so to me, that day that he was born, the room lit up. It was like Bill describes his spiritual experience. That's what it was like for me. And I loved him unconditionally. He loved him unconditionally. He loved me. And, and, um, and then I figured out, you know, I sort of understood what my father went through as he became a teenager. <laughs> you know, um, in the heartbreak and, and, and just all the things that go with having a relationship that's unconditional. Like whatever happens, I love you no matter what. Right, so he's working on his own story, and he's in a federal penitentiary right now, and um, he's in a drug and alcohol program. They just transferred him to North Carolina. I know a little bit about corrections work in North Carolina, and I thank God that's where they sent him to a place that's doing this deal because I'm sure that he'll be introduced to uh, to twelve step program. Um, 
So that was that was very fortunate after being in three other states that he landed in North Carolina. I think that'll be okay. I don't know. God's in charge of that. Um, but unconditionally, no matter what, I love him no matter what. Um, and they're those are the kind of relationships that that I have. Um, we joined the army. I went around the world. I got a little bit of resentment. Because I know, see, I can judge you. I can look and say, you have been in the same home group for 20 years. You know everybody in your home group. You've watched them since they were a little newcomer. And now look at them, they're a doctor. And so I get this, I got this tinge of jealousy that like every three years I got to move. And I don't get to see that fellowship grow up around me. Um, but now, today... Somewhere along the line, I got really, really grateful for that experience that, like, that's not your story. I'd love to hear your story. But my story is that I got sober in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I went to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and I hated it. I didn't like the way they did AA. And um, and I f- somehow I figured out how to get along anyway. And they were sober when I got there, they told me. And they're sober now after I left. And I didn't really need, they didn't need my help in explaining how AA worked. And then I went to Saudi Arabia for Desert Storm. We got called up and I didn't, I was scared. I did not know how that was going to pan out for me. Um, and I was, I got over there and I was lonely and I was desperate. I tried to find a meeting. I put a little note, right? I put a note up on the board that says AA meeting here every night at 1900 hours. And nobody came. I came. I stood there with the big book, kind of like this, so people that knew what the big book was would know who the guy, the meeting guy, right? And nobody ever came. Nobody ever came. And eventually I got so lonely and so desperate, and they only had this near beer because you're not supposed to have alcohol. Uh, but there was a still in the motor pool, and I knew that. And they was getting eventually black market Bahrain imports, and I knew that alcohol existed in our unit. And that would relieve. I got so lonely and so desperate. I'd never, that was the pit of as low as I ever felt sober. And about that time, I had written off to New York and said, would you like forward me my grapevine or something? I don't know how long this. They got a service at uh, the general service office called the Loners International List. And um, and homers, people are homebound. Put me on a list or something. I don't know how it worked then, but I began to get mail from AA members, some of which I knew, and some of them all over the country I'd never met before. People would send a card around their home group, and so I would get this card with like 30 people had signed it, wishing me well, praying for me. They would send speaker tapes was cassettes then, right? I had a little Walkman, right? I could listen to the cassette. Um, people would send literature, a literature, and they would send long letters. There was one guy in Chicago who I've, I've met since that we stayed in touch. Now with Facebook, we still do. Um, he was unemployed at the time, and he was doing the prison correspondence thing, and then he thought he'd pick this guy up over here in the Army. And, and so he would write like these six-page letters because he was unemployed, and he just typed really fast, and it was awesome. At one time, I got 36 pieces of mail in a single day. 
Now, it bulks up when it gets in the theater. So that's when, we, and I was a mail clerk. I was part of my job, and I pick it up. And, um, and the people I worked with were like, what in the world? Who is writing you? Are you writing to those high schools? This, is this any soldier mail? What is this? And, and I don't know how to anonymously answer that question. So I told him I had a fan club. <laughs> and uh, we left it at that. But every night I could go back to my tent and I could read my mail and have a meeting with you because you sent me all this mail. And it, it's, it kept me sober. It was a miracle. It's a beautiful service. Um, if you ever get the chance to do, like, corrections correspondence service, it's, it's a great um, service in Alcoholics Anonymous. To The hand of AA was there all the way at Desert Storm. And then I went to places like Hawaii, which is a hard thing to have to do for your country, and <laughs> Colorado and um, Florida. And eventually we landed here. We've been here for 10 years. And this is where we plan to stay in the, in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. And so this is home. And it's really an honor and privilege to share at your home uh, state AA convention. Um, <clears throat> fast forward to 2009 when I went to, Des- to Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. We didn't need the mail anymore. Mail becomes freight and people just ship stuff back and forth, boxes of stuff. Because people, because we now have robust telecommunications, right? We had phones that worked. We had, uh, we had email. Uh, some people could use Zoom or, or FaceTime their family. And, and so I was able to have an instant communication with you. And that's a beautiful thing too. That can be used for very, very good things in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so, so don't be afraid of using technology to carry the message as well. And that was my experience there. And it was very, very different. Um, I got the one face-to-face AA meeting, and I think they asked me to read the traditions or something, and I couldn't do it without crying because I was so grateful to be at an AA meeting. There were like five people there. And I met one of those guys who was a Navy chaplain later at the International in San Antonio. And um, that's really um, an awful lot... An awful lot else happened. I mean, now I got two boys that are grown. Uh, we adopted a child 15 years ago, and he's in our house, and um, and turned it into just a, a fine young man. And um, and we just have a beautiful life right here with you guys, right here in Kentucky. And um, and I get to do a lot of service, and I've traveled around the entire state. Um, and met so many, there's so many people in this room that I know from general service or from my home group or from like, this is so close to home that there's an awful lot of people here that I know and I love and um, we spend time together with. And um, maybe this weekend I'll get to know a little few more of you. And I'm so grateful to be here and share with your morning and enjoy the rest of the weekend.